You'll recall then that there was this split in the nation, the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called uh, Judah, because of their willful, stubborn rebellion. Last week, uh, we covered the period when Israel fell as a nation, and uh, this week we'll begin at the time of Judah's fall, as we just read about, as Chris read to us from 2 Chronicles. He brought up against them, this is verse 17, he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. Who's he? Verse 17, he? Who's responsible? God. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman. I want to use this this morning as our launch pad to address that question that uh, uh, Claire said I would address, so I ought to do it now. Why does God sanction, even cooperate with, mass killing in the Bible? Many of uh, you have uh, reflected on this in your small groups, at least according to your small group leaders. Why does God allow this, even support it, or will it to happen? Furthermore, to drive the point home, uh, what about those verses earlier in the story that we looked at some months ago when the people were told to go into the land of Canaan and literally annihilate everything, every person that has breath? Was that justified? Is that ever justified? How do we make sense of a God who is portrayed in support of such action And would the nice, loving, kind God that I've got to know come back, please? Any of you need help with this? Okay, we're on the money then this morning. Half an hour. Let's engage our brains, our minds, our hearts, and ask God to help us as we come. Lord, will you open our minds, open our hearts? We believe your word. We believe it's useful. It's inspired and useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, so that we might be fully equipped for every good task. So would you be our light and our guide, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the journey's going to be tricky and uh, hard at times, so let me begin with something that's quite hard. Let me hit you below the belt, tackle you low, as we'd say in the Welsh valleys, with the first issue that we have to face, and that's the issue of God's sovereignty. Let's get a little perspective as we begin. We are very, very, very small. God is very, very, very... Oh, you're doing ever so well this morning. Everything is God's, and God is free to do what he wants with what is his. True or false? True. Everything is God's, and God is free to do, with what, free to do what he likes with what is his. Nothing is mine. Nothing in the end is yours. Everything is a gift, true or false. I nor you created it or produced it. I was given it. So I have no right, you'll say, to take your life. It's not mine to take, you'll tell me. I don't even have the right, we'll say, to take my own life because in the end, this is not my life to take. It's God's life. He's given it to me. It's a gift. I'm responsible to him because ultimately it belongs to him. But what if God should choose to withdraw something he has given? Is that right? 
Is that fair? Would that be different? Is God free to take back what he has given? Whose life is it anyway? Okay, so we're punching low. It's hard, isn't it? Hard to think in these terms because instinctively or logically you know the answer but your heart pulls on that at least if you're human because we think that we have rights. So first issue is a, as a backcloth somewhere is God's sovereignty. Second issue is God's judgment. Very early on in the story, Genesis right through to Revelation, very early on in the story, Genesis 6 and following, we are forced to face up to the fact that sin must be and will be judged. Remember the story of Noah? And how that introduced us very clearly to the idea that sin cannot be allowed to spiral out of control, but must be held in check by God's judgment. And yet even within God's judgment of the flood, there was always hope. There was a family that trusted in him, that turned to him. His name was Noah. And so Noah and his family and the animals were saved. Judgment for sure, but not without hope. What happens to Israel last week and Judah this week is the same. The sins have reached such a peak, there is such a spiralling of darkness that God says this cannot be allowed to continue anymore. Enough is enough. 2 Kings 17, I think you looked at this verse last Sunday, but it summarises something of what was going on in the land. 2 Kings 17, 16, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I think any reasonable person seeing what was going on would say in their hearts, this must stop. Enough is enough. The sacrificing of their children in the fire, openly embracing Satanism and witchcraft. Now who's doing all this? Is this the really bad people? Who's doing this? God's people. These are God's people who've had every chance. God's people who should know better. God's people who were called to be for him a light to the nations. Those who bear his name. Those whose lives are interwoven with God's honour. If these people are dishonoured, then God is dishonoured. What kind of God would turn a blind eye at that point? What kind of God would never do anything about that? Never intervene, never stop it, never say is enough, is enough. When things are that bad that this describes God's people, never mind what the rest of them are doing. It's tempting to say, and sometimes we do, I wish God didn't judge. Ever been tempted to think like that? I wish God didn't judge. But I don't think we mean it, do we? Imagine a world where evil flourishes unchecked. Where evil was never judged, never stopped. 
but allowed without restraint to grow, to infiltrate, to demolish every residue of God's goodness on the earth. Is that what we want? No. Is that what any decent person wants in the end? We're glad for God's judgment because it protects us. We're glad for God's judgment because it provides for us. We're glad for God's judgment because it makes for certain that evil will not win. That's what it's there for. Is it nice? No. Is it pleasant? No. Is it hard? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Imagine at Burlington... Us going upstairs now and choosing one of the children to sacrifice on the communion table. Imagine us prostituting ourselves on this platform with prostitutes in order to uh, somehow appease the gods. What would you want God to do when his people did that? Would you want him to turn a blind eye? Would you want him really in the end to look the other way? So first issue is God's sovereignty. Second issue is God's judgment. Third issue is God's patience. Remember what I said a few weeks ago. After the split of the two nations, the nation, one nation into the two, the north and the south, God would give the northern kingdom how many years to sort themselves out before judgment? How many? 200. 200 years, there or thereabouts to sort themselves out before judgment would come. During which time, what would God do? He would send them the prophets, prophets of all kinds, to teach them, to rebuke them, to warn them, to call them back to himself. So 2 Kings 17 verse 13 summarizes that period of time. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. If the people turned back to him, would God have still judged them? No. Would God still bring disaster on people that were turning to him? No. You see, we see this again and again and again. In fact, that's at the heart of the message of Jonah, which is nothing about the fish. And the story of Jonah is nothing about a preacher scared to go and and, and witness all the stuff we kind of do in Sunday school about Jonah. The reason Jonah would not go and preach to Nineveh is because Jonah knew that if he preached to the Ninevites, there might be a chance that the Ninevites would repent. And Jonah knew that if the Ninevites repented, God would relent from his judgment and Jonah couldn't stand the thought of God letting the Ninevites off the hook. You see, the story of the Old Testament is about a God who loves and forgives and capacity to love and forgive is way bigger than yours or mine. And that's the story of Jonah for a bonus this morning. We take Jonah off in the stories. For hundreds of years, forgiveness was offered. 200 years to the northern kingdom and another 100 years to the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah did have some little bright sparks of light and hope during this period, but to be honest, the downward spiral of evil was accelerating ever more fully out of control. But what did God do? God waited. He waited another hundred years. And what did God do during those hundred years? He sent prophets to warn the people, to teach the people, to beg 
almost literally some of the prophets, are begging that they'd listen to God and turn back to him, that disaster might be averted. Name one of the six prophets that God sent, whose books we have in the Bible. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, good one. Isaiah's a good one. Nope. Hosea, nope, that was the Israel, that was last time. That was to the northern kingdom in Israel. Habakkuk, read his book. Nahum, read his book. Zephaniah, read his book. We got them all? Habakkuk? Big people, I mean, in character and impact and voice and message, calling the people back again and again. God waited. Did they have a chance? Absolutely. Multiple chances, many opportunities. God is patient. What are they doing? They're sacrificing their children. What are they doing? They're prostituting themselves in in sexual religious ceremonies. The temples of the doors are locked shut. And God is waiting, pleading, longing. And so this written of God in the Old Testament, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, is what? Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God is way more patient than you or I ever would have been. And yet people pick up the Bible, and they pick up the Old Testament, and they tell us that God is angry in the Old Testament, and he's always judging people in the Old Testament, and he's always killing people. Have you ever heard someone speak as if that's true? They've never read the book. For hundreds of years God waited. For hundreds of years God begs and pleads. Small children have tantrums. Fact. When our kids were smaller and there was a public tantrum, if I was on my own, I could feel everyone looking and watching. Pathetic dad, he can't even control his kids. Same tantrum, same situation. Mother, poor mother, those kids are giving her a terribly hard time. See, I think dads have it really tough. I was walking through Christchurch Park one morning, walking down by the pond. I was on my own, walking down the path. Coming the other way was a dad pushing a pushchair with a toddler in the pushchair. There was a dummy. It was in the dad's mouth. (laughs) I understand that, dad. And we've all been in a shop where you turn a corner and there is a mother or a father giving a young child a right rocket for something or another. Yeah? Ever seen that? And in the midst of it, everyone's sort of dancing around the shop going, awkward, awkward. And everyone's thinking the same thing. What could that poor kid have possibly done to deserve that kind of hiding? But what you and I probably haven't seen in those moments is that for hours there's been disobedience correction, disobedience correction, disobedience correction, disobedience correction. And when we walk around that corner, it's not a a single moment, but it's the culmination of a whole morning, maybe a whole lifetime of disobedience correction that led to that point. You cannot look at what happened to Israel in 756 and what happened to Judah around 600 and go, wow, God's harsh and out of his tree. What's his problem? You've never read the story, if that's what you find yourself thinking. Chronicles sums it all up in those verses that we had uh, earlier on. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. Because he had pity. 
deep pity. This word is like, it's like down in the bowels. I mean, we talk about loving people with all our hearts. Jewish people talk about loving people with all of their bowels. I mean, that's probably another story. But, but, but like the deep, deep emotions, deep in their being. He had pity. His whole being was wrenched with agony about these people that were willfully, stubbornly disobeying him and sacrificing their children and prostituting themselves and opening their lives to satanic influence and witchcraft and occult and so on. But he sent the messages again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath, excuse me, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no remedy. This is the last moment. This is when we've come to the end of the line. This is when everything else has been tried and failed. So we've got God's sovereignty. We've got God's judgment. Third issue, God's patience. Fourth issue, God's higher purpose. God's purpose is what? That the earth might be filled with the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. How was God doing that? Well, he blessed a family, that that family might become a nation of blessing, that that nation of blessing might bless to the ends of the world. Is that the story? We get all that in Genesis chapter 12, and we see that thread going right through to where we are today. The nation now, instead of being a blessing, had become personified as a curse. Instead of being light, they had joined in the darkness. Instead of offering hope, they were living in despair. But still God had promised. He promised something else, that out of this nation that should be a blessing will come one who will rise up from the line of Judah. One who would be a descendant of King David. A son of Abraham, a son of David, would rise up. God had promised that one would rise up that would establish this kingdom forever. Does God keep his promises? So notice what's happening in 1 Kings 11. Sorry, 2 Kings 11. This is important. You might want to turn to it. Because it gives us a window, an indication of what's going on. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, great names, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. What would that mean? But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahazaz, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide from him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. Evil was flourishing, the temple doors were shut, sons and daughters were being sacrificed, and now there was so much darkness, one woman was trying to exterminate all the royal line. If you were God, would you intervene? If you were you, are you you? You are you. If you were you, would you want God to intervene right now? so that Jesus could still come. Would you? What kind of God would not intervene and keep his promise? 
And yet we talk about him being harsh and angry and cruel and disrespectful and all of this stuff that pours out of people's thoughts and attitudes when they come to the Old Testament. God's higher purpose of restoring and redeeming meant that this evil could not be left unchecked. God would keep his promise. And ultimately, everybody who persistently, stubbornly and willfully stands against his purpose will in the end be moved out of the way. True? You don't need the Old Testament for that. We get that in the New Testament as well. Everyone who refuses to bow the knee, in the end, will be moved out of the way. Jesus is coming back. He is going to restore his kingdom, and those who will not bow the knee will be dealt with. That's a New Testament message that we see reflected in the Old Testament here. He will not let, in the end, his good purpose for all of humanity be thwarted, because a small group of people insist on being stubborn and rebellious. God's higher purpose will prevail. Fifth issue, God's accommodation. Does God accommodate or allow this because of the situation the people are in? Because of the situation the people are in? I think so. God is working with fallen humanity. God had to start where they were. They were in the Middle East, They survived by uh, skirmishes, little warfares, one with another, just in order to live in peace. That was the order of the day. Conquering a nation was the only means of survival. Was that the best way they could live together? No, absolutely not. But did God need to begin where they were to bring something beautiful and good Most definitely. What was he trying to do? He was trying to raise up a nation that would be salt and light. To raise up a nation that would infiltrate and therefore change the culture of the surrounding nations. That was the plan. So God takes a nation that's far from perfect, whose ways are far from perfect, and begins to work through them. So God working within this fallen system does not in any way need us to say, well, therefore God supports this fallen system. Did Jesus ever have a servant attend to his needs? Sorry? Yes, he did. Does that mean that Jesus was saying servants and masters is the right way to be? Jesus is a product of his time. He's living in his day and age. He's subverting the culture in countless ways, but he is where he is. God back in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East is where he is with his people. A pastor called to a church in a mess or a CEO called to transform a company that's in a mess begins working with what's already there, true or false? Does that mean that he or she supports everything that's currently there? Absolutely not. But you have to start somewhere. Is God accommodating here? Does God want people killed? Does God want it like this? No. No. Let's press the pause button for a moment. I want us to step right back now and and look at the big sweep as if we're flying at 60,000 feet and looking right across the, the sweep of the Old Testament. We know from much of what we've seen in the Old Testament that it is all about preparing us and pointing us to Jesus. On each and every page, we see stories that are real that are to us signs and images of a greater reality that's coming. True? So we've looked at that in all kinds of different ways. So the sacrifices pointed and prepared us for Jesus. They were real, 
but they were a sign of a greater reality that was coming. The exodus, the leaving of Egypt, was a real event, but it is to us a sign, a symbol, an image of God's bigger intention, which is to release people out of captivity, not from Pharaoh, but of slavery. When people went into the promised land, that was a real event, But it becomes to us a sign, a symbol of what God longs to do in our lives to take us out of a place of bondage and to bring us into a place of fruitfulness. And we get those things on almost every page of the Old Testament. And uh, there are tons of these real events that are signs that point us to a greater reality. And we've had lots over the last six months. So, what are these moments of God-sanctioned destruction, a sign of. What do these moments in the Old Testament, the Old Testament which is a shadow of the reality that's coming, the Old Testament that is a sign pointing to something greater than itself, what are these moments a sign of? And before we're left scratching our head for too long, Jesus helps us understand that. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. What's Jesus saying? Sodom and Gomorrah was a place God wiped off the face of the earth for their wickedness. People who reject the message of Jesus, verse 14 who do not receive him, verse 14, will face at judgment day, verse 15, a judgment greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. A judgment greater than these is coming. The Old Testament judgments are a sign pointing to a greater truth, a shadow preparing us for a greater reality. So we find Jesus talking about hell in the New Testament almost more than any other subject. Interesting. Same story. Same journey. Signs, shadows, pointing, reality, truth. The same God, the same story of a God who longs to rescue and redeem, who patiently waits that none might perish, but who will ultimately and necessarily execute his judgment on sin in the fullness of time. One book, one story. What should bother us most, what should bother us way, way more, is not that at certain times and places in the Old Testament, God brought the lives, the 60 years, 70 years or so, of men and women to an end, slightly prematurely. What should bother us way more is that we live in a world that is heading to an utter lost eternity. What we read in the Old Testament is nothing compared to the reality, and I'm going to cry, that's coming. And God warns us. Why? Because he loves us. That pity that we read about in Chronicles, his heart for lost people, pours out. Think about what we've seen, though. Before God's judgment, God gives time. He's patient. 
He gave them hundreds of years. During that time, God gives testimony. He sent people to tell them, to appeal to them, to, to, to plead for them, to call them back to himself. And God gives every opportunity for people to turn. And do you know, in the Old Testament, every person that turned was saved. How cool is that? Jericho to the ground, except Rahab, who turned. Does God ever judge or annihilate people that turn back to him? No. This is gospel. And this gospel thread runs right through the Old Testament. So with a bit of framework, and we've just got a few more minutes, let's just get into that, perhaps the most difficult passages that there are in Deuteronomy. The ones where God says, go into the land and and wipe them out. Uh, Deuteronomy 20, have it open in front of you, I think it might help just for a few minutes. Okay, Deuteronomy 10, sorry, Deuteronomy 10, 20, verse 10. Verse 10 down to 15, I'm not going to read it now because we haven't got time, but you can read it, is about normal warfare. When you go to normal cities, and you certainly don't kill the wives and the children and the animals. You do take them, of course, but you don't kill them. Then verse 16 is a different regime, a different dispensation for the entering of the land. Verse 16, however, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, i.e. the cities of Cana, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivazites, and Jebusites, in other words, the Canaanites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. The troubling bit for our purpose today is verse 17. Don't you agree? Completely destroy them. Notice first of all though, as I've just been saying, that this is a unique situation. God does not allow the massacre of anyone at any time and at any place. There is not that dispensation for their normal warfare. The conquest of the land of Cana is the only time God gives this command. And it's for that period of time whilst they're entering the land. Why? Firstly, because it was a matter of God's judgment. Way back in Genesis, just keep your finger where it is, so just look at Genesis on the screen perhaps. Way back in Genesis, when God promises Abraham that he will give his descendants the land, God says, you can't have it yet, essentially, that's my paraphrase of the verses that come before this one, you can't have it yet, but in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites or Canaanites, the sin of the people living there has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, when you do come back, their sin will be out of control and will need dealing with. I will be patient, God is saying, with the Amorites. I will give them 400 years to sort themselves out, or four generations perhaps. I'll be patient with them, I'll give them multiple opportunities, but then, because I know what's coming, their sin will be so great, it will need to be dealt with. So in entering the land, the people of God were exercising God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land, rather than simply 
these were a nice group of people that were living happily and God says you can have that land and God's people walk in, walk in and push them out. Which is how we often think about it. And the book of Deuteronomy makes this perfectly clear. Look at chapter 9. Again, you might want to look on the screen because we're going to come back to chapter 20 in a minute. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. So once you've got into the land, don't say to yourselves, hey, we're here because we're so good. God wanted to give us the land and we couldn't care less about those people that were already living in the land. It's ours because God says. No, when you get into the land, remember that the only reason you were given the land was on account of the wickedness, the judgment of, from God of the nations that were already living there. Deuteronomy 18 makes the same point with much more colorful language. It talks about the, the sacrifices of sons and daughters in fire. It talks about practices of divination, sorcery, omens, engaging in witchcraft, casting spells, medium spiritualists, those who consult the dead, and all kinds of detestable stuff. That's what was going on in the land. And the only reason God's people were allowed to go in and do what they did was because God was saying, enough is enough is enough is enough. And any respectable human being looking at that nation would say, enough is enough is enough is enough. A unique situation, but there was also a higher purpose, okay? So we're back in this verse, uh, in chapter 20. The higher purpose. Why? Why do you have to get rid of them all? Well, because if you don't, you will end up joining with them. If you don't, there will be syncretism. If you don't, my light that's there to shine will be almost put out. Is that or is that not what happened? They didn't obey God at this point. And it meant that God's blessing, really apart from David and Solomon and a few high moments, never really got off the ground because they hadn't done what God had asked. God had a higher purpose to create a nation that was pure, that would shine a pure light, that would be a blessing, that would take that blessing to the ends of the earth. But it didn't really happen because they disobeyed. But this only came after years of patience and judgment. And remember, all those things, there was time, four generations in the land, there was time for them to repent, there was testimony, they heard about what God had done to Pharaoh and Egypt, through Moses and Joshua, there was opportunity to turn, but the Amorites, the Canaanites didn't turn through all of that time. And we can see how this works in other places in the Bible too. Sodom and Gomorrah, that we mentioned earlier on, was judged because of their wickedness. Was there time in the story? Yes. Was there testimony in the story? Abraham and Lot? Yes. Was there opportunity to turn? Yes. Did those who turned, Lot, get saved? Yes. God is always just. God is always fair. He's always patient. Always creates opportunity. Always brings his message to bear. And none of this is genocide. Because genocide is all about uh, racial or ethnic cleansing. It's centered on a particular ethnic group. Notice how in the conquering of the land, the people of God exercised God's judgment on behalf of the pagan nations. Notice how later on, with the fall of Israel and Judah, God used the pagan nations to exercise judgment on his people. This is nothing to do with genocide. This is about the judgment of God. And Habakkuk addresses this very issue. He's outraged. He says, my goodness, God, what on earth are you doing? How come you're raising up the Babylonians to sort us out? And God goes on to explain in the book of Habakkuk why. Some extra issues just very quickly. And then we're coming into land. 
few extra things just to think about. The places of attack, like Jericho and I, were probably, possibly, probably fortified settlements, i.e. they were forts full of combatant soldiers. So the idea of going into the land and destroying all the men, women, children, and goodness knows what may not be anything like what that conjures up in our minds. The language that's used is elusive. It's like, kill everybody. So it's very clear that that language could have applied to what was, in effect, a military base. The language uh, used in different ways, not only about women and children. It's a bit like the language when it says that everyone was killed. It's a bit like when it says about John the Baptist, the whole of Jerusalem came out to see him. We, we don't imagine that Jerusalem was completely empty of people, do we? If you do, you... you know, it's a bit like everyone was at the Suffolk show last week. No, they weren't. But you wouldn't go, no, they weren't. If I said everyone was there, you'd know what I, what I meant. So the idea of entering the land and everybody being killed and, and so on. Uh, it's much more likely that these are far more local skirmishes than, the, the, than what we imagine about the way they went into the land. The, word, the, the Hebrew word elef, which is translated as thousand in the Bible, can mean unit or squad. So that would create a different connotation about what is being said. And uh, the times when... This notion of killing everybody occurs in the Bible, just happens four, maybe five times. And three of those occasions are totally unique. The Exodus, or the flood for a start, the Exodus, the conquest. Uh, so three out of five, the other two might be Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened with Saul and the Amalekites. So three out of the five. So this idea. This idea that the God in the Old Testament is rampantly going around killing everybody, that some people talk as if that's true, is absolute humbug. And nothing like what we have portrayed in the Scriptures here. It gives a false impression. But there's something much more important, isn't there? And I'll leave you with this. What's this all teaching us? This isn't about the Amalekites, is it? Or the Israel? This is about you and me, isn't it? Isn't the Bible always about you and me? What's it teaching? Judgment is coming. That that's real. That these are shadows of a greater reality that's coming. Time will run out. The fact that you and I still have time is a measure of God's grace. God gives testimony. This message will be preached to the ends of the earth. Time, testimony, an open invitation for all to turn. And here it is. And here it is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That word pity, that that deep, deep, deep emotion in God's heart that wept and waited and longed for is what took him to the one story and you are invited to turn and to know let's stand and sing